0: Andrew Haig is the founder of the mobile engagement platform, GroundSource, and co-founder of the Minneapolis news site, Southwest Voices. Haig is a crowdsourcing pioneer in the world of journalism, having worked for 20 years to help newsrooms more effectively engage their audiences, but this experience wasn't enough to help him avoid a pivotal and potentially business-threatening event, which we discuss in detail. In his pursuit for the freedom to call his own shots, he took on grant funding that dried up shortly after he started scaling his business. Haig's attempt at blending non-profit and for-profit business is as exciting as it is gut-wrenching, and the pain he has endured for his business is palpable. My name is Nick Lambus, and I won't keep you waiting any longer to hear from Andrew Haig. So remember, it's not over until it's over. So, welcome back to It's Not Over. Um, Andrew, thank you for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited. So, we go back. um, We've crossed paths over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, uh, all over the show in the media world. Um, So, I'm excited about this because your business is interesting. uh, Your experience of it is interesting. And uh, when we were off air, you were talking about the meshing of purpose and profit and sustainability. Um, So... Let's set the scene for listeners and viewers. Um, tell me which business we're going to be talking about, um, what was going on in that business, um, and anything else you think that is interesting.
1: Yeah, so we'll be talking about Source, which is a company I founded in 2012 um, with the idea of creating a text messaging and engagement platform designed specifically for media, for publishers. I came out of the broadcast world or from... I worked at American Public Media for a long time and was kind of an entrepreneur there and saw a need and an opportunity um, to scale up text messaging, feeling that that, that was an, a channel that was being underutilized, um, but also had this incredible promise for being inclusive and broad-based and intimate and personal and all the things it's proven to be. Um, so started that in 2012 and um, mainly bootstrapped it, got some grant funding because i have been um, as you just kind of referenced at this intersection of um, kind of mission-driven and now for-profit work, um, the kind of work I do tends to be um, uh, eligible for grants. There's a lot of grant money in the United States for for journalism and especially for community-driven kind of journalism projects. Um, so got an initial grant to start it, and then was really from that point on bootstrapping based on customer revenue. Um, and trying to keep things really lean um, while I was iterating, um, tried to raise money from investors on several occasions. And it's just the sector we were in. My background came out coming out of media, not necessarily a, a, you know didn't have a co-founder who is a techie or coming out of a Google or Facebook or you know something like that. Um, so a mix of not having a you know very like a um, a lot of launch trajectory. You know our velocity wasn't that great. Um, and my background didn't have all the kind of the trappings of someone you know you'd you would fund you know to the tune of millions of dollars before there was really a business so which actually turned out to be just fine in the long run because um I didn't want to end up hiring more bosses for myself I think I I made the entrepreneurial leap in part because I saw an opportunity, but also as a, you know, probably like a lot of entrepreneurs, I wanted the freedom to call my own shops and, and the autonomy to, um, to write my own ticket and make my own schedule. So part of me kind of felt like even getting, being successful at getting an investor could be a bad thing because I'd be hiring someone else who'd be helping dictate the direction of my company. Um, so anyways, that's, that's, um, uh, was kind of the backdrop and, um, and I'm happy to jump into the first near-death experience. There's been there have been so many, but you tell me <laughs> what we should talk about next.
0: Cool. Okay. So I'm interested uh, in a little bit more detail about the business. So yeah. what's the revenue model? Uh, is it a non-for-profit exclusively? Is it funding backed? Like, how do you make money and stay sustainable uh, so that we've got context for this near-death experience?
1: Yeah. So we. Uh uh, subscriptions—a monthly subscription fee or an annual subscription fee to newsrooms that use the service. And that's based on how many people they're engaging and how often. So generally, and then there's an onboarding fee. Um, And the onboarding fee was really designed because we are seeing organizations, you know, become curious about text messaging, grab the platform, do the self-service kind of stuff or the service model where they, you know, this kind of hands-free, they they go off and do it themselves and then those, people, those clients were churning quite a bit because they weren't using the platform very effectively. So we um, saw the need to really have an onboarding phase where they were both putting some skin in the game, i.e. money to pay for the onboarding, so they felt more invested in it. Um, that would filter out bad customers. It would pay us for our time to, to make sure that they were successful. And so that the onboarding fee plus a monthly subscription fee, that kind of is a pay-as-you-grow model, so the more people they engage, the more, um, they pay in terms of subscription fees. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how we make money. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and so what was the other question?
0: No, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Um, so now give me some context on the near business death experience you want to talk about. Uh, when is it, and how big is the company while you're going through this, um, this thing? And then what is it?
1: Yeah. So it's about, um, I should have looked at the exact date. So it was about four years ago. So let's say 2017 into 2018. Um, we were, you know, on track to make, you know, three hundred, three hundred fifty thousand $350,000 a year at that point. Um, and growing, you know, their clients became more and more interested and felt like we were um, at this inflection point. We had, because we had bootstrapped everything, um, a lot of the technology was cobbled together, you know, a bit of duct tape here, a bit of, Bit of wire, you know, a bit of string, um, and it all was functional, but it wasn't as intuitive or as kind of self-service. I mean, the the, the ideal of a self-service, software as a service model was obviously very appealing um, because clients could self onboard, um, and I felt like a lot of my time was spent, you know, effectively being the interface for that, um, which was not very really scalable. So the idea was to you, we were we had some grant money coming through the door, the door which was a Called the Community Listening and Engagement Fund, and it was to um, give newsrooms who, that were curious about using texting and integrating it into their their funnel into their kind of audience engagement plans enough money to to pay for a year-long subscription to Groundsource, and there are other services involved as well. So we had signed up for that, and I helped kind of create this fund um, with the understanding that there'd be three kind of tranches of of funding, so three cohorts, and there was an application process for the newsrooms. It was great. I mean, it was great in the sense that um, effectively the grant was paying for us to do a whole lot of marketing and to get a whole lot of people interested in – a whole lot of news organizations interested in using the platform. Um, and so we, that was all set up, and um, we were ready to start onboarding those customers, Had our, you know, kind of improved our workflows to, to handle more customers and to scale up. Uh, And that's when things kind of went sideways.
0: Okay. Uh, So, tell me about uh, how big is the business as things are going sideways, and is the company on an upward trajectory generally?
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, three hundred to three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year in in revenue, and definitely on an upward trajectory.
0: Um, And in terms of staff, is it just yourself, or how big is the team? It was
1: myself, another full-time customer success manager. Um, some contract front end developers and then a full-time kind of full stack developer. So depending on the and day. And is it I mean, a uh,
0: side hustle for you?
1: No, it was, it was my main thing. thing. You know, I, and I, um, you know, had the benefit of having a spouse who's, you know, has a stable kind of income. So I was not that I wanted to have a variable income, but I had a little bit more flexibility to not have to necessarily every month hit a certain number. Um, and we had mm-hmm. also hired a kind of CTO, um, and a kind of ops person, a COO type person, um, with the understanding, and this is where we get into how it went sideways. So we had staffed up and scaled to, in in preparation for you know some growth, um, and the growth coming from that grant funded kind of those grant funded cohorts of news organizations that be part of this fund, but also presumably if we nailed that, you know a lot more business beyond that. Um, and then we got into this kind of the, the funding period, you know, the first cohort came through, you know, we added, I don't know what, what it was like 10 or 15 news organizations, something like that, more, closer to 10. Um, and then there's, then there was some ambiguity about how many cohorts would actually be involved. And then the people who were kind of administering the grant got squirrely about, you know, wanting to other platforms to be involved in this fund. And, you know, there was a big foundation involved and I, that'll remain nameless. Um, uh, that, you know, the, the, whether it was the politics or just the, the kind of dynamics of what was going on behind the scenes, there was making it uncertain that all three cohorts would come through. So we had basically projected a certain amount of cash coming in because of three cohorts of, you know, 10 news organizations, the piece, each of them spending, you know, a couple thousand dollars in onboarding and, um, you know, several hundred dollars a month in terms of subscription fees. And we had staffed up on that basis. So you can see where the the kind of the iceberg is coming here. Um, One of the, they decided to cut out one of those cohorts without really informing us. So we were left with a big gaping hole in our spreadsheet uh, to the tune of probably $150,000 or so. Um, And that was money that we were going to spend on that we were spending on a team of developers and software designers to kind of re-engineer the whole thing and then make a much more intuitive platform to allow for self-onboarding, but also to make it a more kind of delightful experience. Um, so we had you know, a really good CTO who I'd worked with before, awesome designer, excellent front-end developers, um, and they they got to about... And an ops guy who was kind of helping orchestrate the whole thing while I was kind of working as the product brain and and the customer kind of facing person. Um, And we got to probably about 90% complete on this whole reengineering when we just strictly ran out of money. You know, there was no more money. And I was leveraged in the sense that I borrowed from my retirement. Thankfully, I didn't just take the money out and and cash out, but I, I borrowed against it. And, you know, personal credit cards... As well as a business loan, um, so I was, you know, not to not leverage to the extent that I felt like things were existentially um, bad, like falafel bank- bankruptcy. But you know, it was more than hundred thousand dollars in debt, probably one hundred fifty thousand dollars in debt that we had taken on in order to effectively produce this new product or version two of the product with the expectation that there would be cash on the other end of that with this grant and with the kind of growth from these customers to pay for that. And then we would get to this point where things are moving faster, we've got this great interface, we're on par with, you know, in terms of just the software itself, not certainly the company, I'm on par with a MailChimp or, you know, a SurveyMonkey in terms of intuitiveness and in a category that really hadn't, there there wasn't really an established leader um, in that category. very fractured, lots of little companies. If we were able to kind of pull it off and kind of like thread the needle, that um, we could be maybe not a category winner, but certainly um, a nice-looking company, you know, with with a good good growth trajectory, um, plus doing work that was, you know, in many cases purpose-driven. And so I just felt like we were on the right path, and that just um, that almost, you know, that's why I'm on the show. That almost killed us. Um, And it was uh, waking up to, you know, um, run out of credit on this account, topped out the credit on that account. Where's the money going to come from? Even to pay for the the debt service on that. Um, And I'm not like, and I think this will become clear as we talk, I'm not um, a seasoned operator at this level. I'm not running super sophisticated forecasts and spreadsheets in the background. A lot of it is certainly not back of the napkin, but it's not like, you know, we have a, CFO, or, you know, we're not, we're not, um, it wasn't a big operation. So a lot of this is, feels and was, seat of the pants, um, which is, you know, a bit crazy to say, kind of taking that level of risk without a whole lot of, you know, operational infrastructure. But it's just the the nature of running lean and bootstrapping something is like you have to wear a bunch of hats. And the hats I wore well were the product hats, the customer hats, the listening to the, the whole industry kind of looking around the the corner in terms of where things are going. And I tried to find the hats for technology and finance and ops. And to some extent did, but we just didn't have enough, um, sophistication in those areas to be able to see the iceberg coming.
0: So let's unpack this a little. Um, you, you've got a proof of concept, you've gone to market. things are working. Then you get a grant the grant says three cohorts and you guys start tooling up, scaling up to cater for these three cohorts and an influx of about 30 to 40 new customers. Things are looking good. Um, And then my question is when this grant started to change shape, were there no contracts in place? Was there no desire to notify you more effectively? Uh, Is this how grants work in the world of purpose-driven businesses? Like- how come this wasn't more formalized from their perspective? I mean, you are a startup, obviously you are responding, but I am. I am always frustrated by this side of the world that there there is a very fluid way to operate inside of this grant world, and like, why weren't there contracts?
1: I, you know, it's a good question. I, I think we, it's kind of like, are sort of a for-profit business. Um, receiving a grant already, you feel like a level of like. I felt a level of gratitude and a level of, like, um, this is an unusual arrangement. You know, how many for-profit companies that are building, you know, essentially a scalable software platform are eligible to receive a grant to do work that's, you know. So part of it is, you know, the, the saying in the States, you know, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Is that, does that track in, in England and in South Africa, you know? um yep. just don't ask too many questions because the you know this 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 pot of money might go away um so there's a bit of that which is kind of um not documented you know and i'm not writing it down anywhere um but that's the way i felt um and then you know so then and it's you know the the asymmetry in the power dynamics between the funders and this is this is why I know my work at American Public Media and a lot of my work in media has been grant funded, and um, I find that it very often um, a couple things. One is it skews your, um, your objectives on a day-to-day basis from serving some end community or some end customer to making sure you're meeting the grant deliverables. So whatever was written in that grant becomes your North Star and not Whereas, you know, business may change day to day or the dynamics of the market may change day to day and your North star should be your customer in this case, the community Um, and not like whether someone in an office building in Miami thinks that you've checked the boxes on this specific grant but that's just the reality of grants. You have to meet deliverables um, which is, you know, often fine Um, but it's, you know, the influence they have to kind of make capricious decisions that without any accountability um, it just puts you at a at, puts you at a disadvantage, and um, there's a power differential there that that can create dynamics like this. And if we were to go to them and say, "Hey, you know, you agreed to deliver us X much as X many dollars in business," you know, that might have been a difficult conversation to have. We never had it, and we probably should have. Um, but it's why I've wanted to distance myself from grant funded projects. Um, as much as I say that I'm working on grant funded projects right now, but more like distance myself from actors in those spaces that I feel aren't acting with accountability or good faith. Um, and, you know, I think increasingly we know, some, you know who some of those funders are. Um, but I think to me, it was always the, always the desire was to have the exchange be a valuable service. You give me your credit card number or you give Stripe your, your credit card number processes the payment every month and if you don't like the service you cancel it that to me is the most honest exchange in this space the software space versus like hey we we got a grant to fund this work so our newsroom can do it um and that creates a weird dynamic for the newsroom too because they're getting grant funding to do something that they may not be culturally or strategically or organizationally set up to do well um so i don't know i've tried I've, i've grown to be more um circumspect about getting into deals like that. Um, and, you know, for the reasons I just talked Makes about, sense. too, it's like you may the the mm-hmm. entire grant money may not come through or it may take them, you know, 12 months to cut the check or whatever. And so you're exposing yourself to a lot of risk if you're if you're making big decisions like hiring and, you know, investing in infrastructure based on a lot of, you know, something that has a lot of uncertainty around it.
0: So. At the time you've scaled up staff and the first cohort goes through the second and third are starting to look questionable. How do you respond as the founder, and the CEO, do you start getting rid of people, um, trying to find other income sources? Like what happens at that immediate time?
1: Well, it's, it's funny too. We had just um, started adopting uh, an operational framework called EOS or Traction. Are you familiar with that? I'm usually kind of allergic to operational mo- models. It's just not how I think. So we thought we had like, you know, to keep the sailing metaphor, we thought we had the, you know, the, the, the steering wheel. We thought we had all the instrumentation that we needed to, to successfully look out into the future and say, here's where the risks are, are showing up. Um, but it's, you know, it's clear that we didn't. And when that became obvious, um, you know, thankfully I felt like I felt I had hired people and was working with people who candor was a lot of, you know, it was a big value of, it's a big value of mine. And it was something that Mm -hmm. the rest of us shared. So there was no secret. It wasn't like I was staying up till three in the morning, crunching numbers and spreadsheets, not telling anyone. and showing up to work with a smile on my face and trying to pretend like all was well um, when we were about to fall off a cliff. So I don't think we factored in the risk of the money not coming through. Or we were, we were, we were taking on a very like, professional, large organizational approach to building software. We were, you know, we had, it wasn't a waterfall, certainly it was agile and all the good things now with scrums and you, you name it. But it was like, we hired a bunch of people for it. Um, and that, we'll get to that later, but you know, one of the things I've learned from that is like, gotta be scrappier than that. You can't act like a big company if you're a small company. Um, but we started just had was having honest conversations with everyone and it became, clear. And in fact, one case, um, and I'm eternally grateful for this, the person who um, we ended up letting go suggested himself. He's like, look, I don't think these numbers are adding up. And I think, you know, I don't think you can afford to pay me. Not as like, it wasn't a confrontational conversation. It was a difficult conversation because he saw the writing on the wall and he didn't want, I think we had enough trust between us that um, he knew I would make it, you know, make decisions in our best interest. And I wasn't taking much of a um a salary at that point so it wasn't like i was sitting there you know paying myself a great deal of money and, and then you know so i think there was a lot of trust um, on the team even though you know things we were entering a difficult moment and um the part that i i kind of most um regret is the wrong word because i've learned a lot from it but um We got so close to being able to ship the software. So, so close. I mean, 50 hours of labor, something like that. Um, But of -hmm. course, we'd have to support it. And it was a new piece of software. And, you know, those take a while to harden and to mature. Um, So even if we had just made it to the 50 hours, we would have needed more gas in the tank to actually operate the new thing.
0: Yes, you you had the the conversation with your team and you let how many people go? Just the one?
1: Uh, No, left ops. Go CTO, go the customer success person, go, and it ended up
0: wow.
1: getting down to me and a full-time developer um, wow. who is based in Mombasa in Kenya, actually. Um, and then I, you know, and then uncertain as to whether we could continue operating just on a day-to-day basis, even with that stripped-down, you know, skeleton crew um, to support the customers we had. And then there was the prospect too of like, do we want to be a walking zombie for the next several years and just make ends meet? Um, and then of course, you know, you get into the, you know, what what were my options? What did I feel like I, what were my plan Bs and Cs? What could I do? And you know, I was still very invested personally, and to, and to an increasing extent in terms of debt, just like in terms of money invested in this company, not just folding. I didn't want to just say mm. I'm done with it because um, that would have probably meant filing a personal bankruptcy and going through a lot of financial stuff. And I felt like there was there was a business there. We just made a swing in it that, that that was a swing and a miss. And um, mm. and I you know just it was not my it's not my I'm a serial entrepreneur, but I'm I, the, the big hockey stick growth and big payday was never what I was in it for, which I began to wonder maybe that's actually good to be in a, you know, like for the money, because it keeps you really focused on some key things. Um, And the mix of purpose-driven and for-profit, sometimes things get ambiguous as to why you're doing things. Um, But that also meant that I didn't feel like, you know, it wasn't the end of the world for me. I live a perfectly comfortable life and everyone was fine. Um, And uh, I'm fortunate to have a, you know, a home that we own and, and, um, you know, financial resources available that, and I, you know, I don't need a lot. Um, And I don't, you know, don't want for, not been interested in owning a Tesla, even though it's it's become cheaper or like whatever the prototypical things you do as a successful entrepreneur, Mm. those don't interest me. I just, like I I said, the autonomy of doing it, the, the challenge of building something new, doing something that could be scalable and lasting and, and kind of, improve um, communities and people. I, those, those are the things that motivate me. And, and a for-profit company for me was the vehicle to do that. And I felt like there was still enough mojo left in that idea. And I personally still had gas in the tank. I was not done. So I was, I was like, I'm going to mm-hmm. stick this out and we'll just see, we'll see what happens. I, I can't foresee the future, but okay. I made a decision to continue.
0: And how long was it between the grant being issued and you going down to two people? What was that time frame?
1: Um, it was about um, nine months, something something like Pretty that. Pretty rapid. It was very rapid. Um, yeah. And it was the okay. yeah. I mean, it was the the case of like, we finally got some money coming in the bank, and these are things I wanted to do for a while I've wanted to re-engineer the platform
0: and with two people did you find that now you had cash flow now your core business was kind of actually profitable and you could take some breath to figure out what was next or was it holy shit panic stations let's figure this out
1: there was definitely several months there of panic station and uh you know waking up and not really knowing how that day was going to play out that week that month um And then, um, there were, um, around when COVID hit, this is not two years ago, there was some small business disaster, economic, uh, EIDL, I forget what it stands for, disaster loans. I mean, we, it wasn't, the disaster was COVID. Um, and a lot of our customers did have to pull back and newsrooms were doing a lot of rethinking of their budgets. And so it was a genuinely, you know, we were genuinely, um, Eligible for it. Our initial shock to the system was not COVID-related, but it certainly didn't help. Um, so that that loan helped us kind of tie things over, and it helped me restructure a bunch of debt out of like high-interest credit cards into extremely low-interest small business loan, basically. So that took that took a lot of the pressure off because it was a matter of like, you know, um, I don't I didn't want to expose my family's finances to I didn't I didn't want those exposed. Even though I'd borrowed from the retirement to, to a certain extent, and um, and there was some personal debt, being able to restructure that as business debt um, was huge. Like it really made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so that took the pressure off. And to your point, yeah, the, we were down to uh, a developer and myself, uh, and I could pay myself what I thought. You know, so we were back to running really, really lean, um, and. And yes, exactly that. We were able to start kind of becoming a profitable company and, and, um, and customers, even though a competitor showed up in our space, they were kind of edging in on a lot of customers we were talking to, even though we were in a, in my opinion, a small pond, like, you know, building technology for news media, um, even if you're doing it on a global basis, it's not a massively huge business. Um, so having another competitor saying a lot of the same things we were saying, um, was another shock to the system but even then we just kept at it and we you know kept on writing case studies kept on doing good work kept on documenting it um i just made sure and this is again something that a you know it's a core value of mine i was all about like making sure the customers were having a good experience and being really present for them mm. and just like whatever happens if i do that i think we'll be okay um and i think it's turned out to be true that that's that's where we've gotten a lot of referrals. It's like, I, you know, spend a lot of, give a lot of personal attention to each customer to the extent that I can. And, you know, kind of have an intuitive sense of when they're doing well and not doing well. Um, and uh, just doing that and just, just kind of building incrementally from that basis and being really lean and not feeling that pressure of, oh, you know, there's an investor, we got to really hit the numbers in this quarter. Um, kind of back to the autonomy, like I was talking about before, um and it's enjoyable i mean i I enjoy it still and uh we're growing and um we've got some plans to merge with another company over the next several months um and the space itself is growing so we're, we're able to um kind of navigate through that and get to a really lean operating framework that um that's really helped me too so it's like starting this new news outlet in minneapolis that's the, that's the kind of philosophy and attitude I brought to this, like start really lean. We're going to build the bare minimum of what we need to build and not one iota more than that. And then our community be responsive to the community. Have that be our center, like our North star, our, our, um, everything we do is about listening to and serving the community. And they're going to tell us what we should build next. Um, So I think that's, that's the philosophy I've kind of learned the hard way to ground source. And I feel like that is a philosophy now that it brings to other projects is, is, uh, start as small as you can be super, super responsive to every, you know, to every person who shows up at your doorstep, engaging with your product. And then the, you know, I think you'll learn what to build from, from them.
0: I want to talk more about the personal responses to this, like how you felt um, and a variety of questions on that vein. So the first is while this is all happening, what is Andrew feeling? Like what are you going through as a human and an individual throughout all of this?
1: Oh, I mean, the emotions are just all over the board. I think there's, um, there's some shame. There's some, um, feeling like you messed up and you, um, And it was based on some personal failing, you know, going back to like childhood and like, um, you know, notes on report cards, he needs to apply himself or, um, he needs to, you know, whatever he needs to turn his work in on time. It's just like, you kind of like cycle back through, um, childhood memories of feeling inadequate or not like, um, not like up to the task. And there's a feeling of, you know, there's a part, I have three kids, um, they're a little bit older now, two, two teenagers and one 10-year-old. And, you know, when we're going through all this, you know, the oldest is 12 and the youngest is, what, six, I guess, at that point. And not wanting that, not wanting to – well, there's the financial piece. I don't want to disrupt our family's kind of um, financial health with, with a bad decision. So there is that. There's that layer of it. But also there's the, like – and i struggle with this because I'm not sure how much I should think this way, but, you know – setting an example for them, like, Hey, dad's an entrepreneur. Like they tell their friends, like, Hey, dad started a business, you know, um, next day, Hey, dad, you know, filed for bankruptcy, dad's business collapsed. Like, that's not a, yeah. I don't know, like how much weight do you put into like that? And, um, and you want to be honest. It's not
0: really what you strive for when you start a business, right? No, Your kids being disappointed in you. <laughs>
1: right. And there's that narrative too. Like that narrative yeah. becomes its own thing. But you know, I, um, I guess I've grown more comfortable with owning my failures, and I think I appreciate this venue mm-hmm. to do that. I think that's something that we're not um, set up to do, especially because we're, you know, optimi- entrepreneurs are by nature optimistic, forward-thinking, um, growth. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always something better. And if you just to, to sit in what I would perceive as wallow in one's failures um, was just not a very attractive prospect to me. So that was, I mean, yeah. honestly, that's part of, like, why I've chose to grind it out too. I'm like, the, the phrase that I kept on coming back to is the, the only way out is through like, that's what I, that was kind of my mantra through the whole thing. It's like, the only way out of this thing is right through the teeth of it. I can't avoid it. I can't pretend it's not there. I can't. Um, it's kind of like you're, I don't know. I've never climbed a mountain. I don't really plan on climbing a mountain anytime soon. I don't know if that's right for but Something where you know you can't turn back; just you might as well complete it. Um, uh, that kind of was my became my attitude. So there was that. There was like the that oscillating shame, um, feeling of inadequacy, the just the sheer terror of the financial piece of it, not knowing which bill would come due and which bill I couldn't pay. We were we were using. Um, a provider that um, th- that we had signed an annual contract and that just was not um, at a certain um, recognition of volume. And that just wasn't gonna play out. Um, so there are things like that, certain certain agreements we had made and certain kind of um, things we were linked to that were mm-hmm. kind of inexpensive. Did you go back
0: to those agreements to get rid of them? Yeah. Like you go back to that annual contract and we're like, this is not going to happen. I have to exit. And did you pay penalties around that? Uh, were those hard conversations to have?
1: Yeah, definitely. And some of them, they're very hard conversations. We had to um, pull back some were, you know, straightforward and, and, you know, we understand your position and let's see if we can figure out that kind of thing. Um, kind of un- unwinding some of those things. But I think that also led to really beneficial new things because I found a new provider that was, Lot less expensive, and we and was able to negotiate a flexible agreement such that there was no minimum commit after a certain amount of time. So, if, if even a business dipped below a certain line, um, we wouldn't be um, responsible for some of that. So, because of those hard lessons, was able to be smarter and a lot like um, more resourceful in negotiating agreements and not getting into that position again. You know, I mm-hmm. don't think there's any substitute for going through this and learning from it um, at the same time I wish it on upon no one like I don't um, I don't think it's uh, I think I'm definitely stronger for it um, but I think yeah to those feelings I've, and I think there's also a sense of like you know there's the narrative in the industry too developing a reputation as someone who's not a good operator or someone who's like not able to see things through and I think too there was like a bit of back to the childhood thing you know feeling like and childhood uh, a lot of potential but sometimes didn't see that potential through to its fruition because I either stopped short or I didn't have didn't apply myself to that like that final 10 percent that would like you know really so feeling too like I'm gonna I want to change that narrative for myself um Hmm. so yeah those are all tangled up and and then you're like well what am I doing here like if I'm and I think back to the Maybe it's good to have money be the reason you're doing something because if, if that would have been the only reason I was doing this, I would have been, I would have exited then probably filed for personal bankruptcy.
0: So kind of a good segue into uh, what I wanted to ask in relation to this idea of calling it quits, failure, sticking it through, you know, the only way, th- uh, what, did, what were you saying? The only way through this is through this or whatever. Is there now looking back on everything, is there a point at which you've decided Failure is an option. Like I've been through this near-death experience once. If I have to go through it again, I'm actually going to call it quits because I am personally a big fan of this. Clicked some what I call failure triggers. This has reached my failure triggers. Three of the four are there. I'm out. It's time for me to start something new.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I I think the um I I would be way less um likely to stick with an idea that I felt like didn't have. But I think I but I think also I wouldn't be as highly leveraged going into that in the future that you know so I wouldn't be like as um I wouldn't take on personal debt I would I um I would build with customer revenue before I even created the first like created the the product that's what I would do next um mm-hmm. so I feel like yes I would definitely cut cut bait or you know stop something that I felt wasn't working and do it right when I'd be curious to hear what your triggers are. I would like, I should actually have those like written down. Um, um, but also that I don't plan on putting myself in that position again, because I'm not going to get out. Um, not going to leverage myself on an idea that hasn't been proven, like prove the idea way quicker. <laughs>
0: The key thing for me, and it's worth, I mean, touching on the failure triggers. They, for me, they're different on every business, um, but they're contextual to my idea of success triggers too. So for example, one of my failure triggers is if it keeps me up at night for more than seven nights in a row, there is a problem. Like there is something going on. And then I need to reassess. If I can't walk my dogs for three days in a row, then I'm working in a way that I'm not comfortable with. If I can't pay salaries for three months in a row, then I've got a problem. These are triggers. And then once those triggers all come to fruition at the same time, you have a bigger problem. There is something systemic that is causing these triggers to click every time that you need to reassess. And they are different for every business and they do tie in with success triggers. For example, one of my success triggers is being able to say no to anything at any time without any negative ramifications. So you, for example, could say no to your grant funding anybody ever again. If your business is profitable, success trigger, then you can say no at any time. That's a success trigger for me. So they're contextual. And I think that for me, they help me stay sane because I know where you are and where you've been with this. keeps you up at night. It damages your relationships. You don't sleep. You don't eat properly. You don't train. And that's actually the next thread I want to cover. You've mentioned a few times the the personal um, loans that you've taken out and I have to say I've never done that. I've been lucky that my advisors have always said to me, start a business, take the money out in the business, and then the business folds, the debt is gone. So my question very specifically is, how did your partner feel about the financial commitments you were making to this business?
1: To the extent that they were fully apparent to her, um, not awesome. <laughs> um, I think that yet um, awesome. uh. You know the belief in what I do and my passion um, was all has always been there, um, but it's always been a little bit hard to pin down the financial piece of it. And I think that's just a that's mm-hmm. always that's been a not always I shouldn't say that. Um, um, it, it has been a weakness of mine. It's just being very um, meticulous about the financial piece of it. So it's just like there's a lot of pockets of debt here and there, it's like it was hard to even get a full picture of it. And once you did, and once I sat down and did the math, I'm like, geez, that's not that's not a pretty picture." Um, and right uh, so I, we were always solid. I never felt like there was, um, I never felt like it had driven a wedge deep in our relationship, which I'm, you know, partly credit her for, and feel fortunate to have a partner who's like got just um, seemingly endless uh, re- reservoirs of um for that kind of entrepreneurial spirit. you and
0: me both man i mean I, me yeah, that's probably the book uh,
1: that i would write or maybe the one that comes next it's like either don't marry an entrepreneur or if you do here's what you should know
0: here's some shit to know yeah <laughs> yeah
1: um so um, so we were and i think just we're able to um um come up with a plan that we just start chipping away at it and um, definitely being able to restructure the personal loans as business debt was massive and took the pressure off overnight.
0: Had It is such a key lesson uh, for anyone I coach or any boards I've ever sat on. The number one thing is never take personal surety, never be able to go down with your ship. Building a business should absolutely not be a personal risk for your financial debt. Um, And look, I get that sometimes it's necessary, but there are definitely ways to avoid that, that if you're listening, you should do. Um, And tied into that, Andrew is the question of mental health. So how, how have, how's it been throughout this and coming out of it, uh, with your mental health? Have you managed, what have you done? Um, are you conscious of it? Uh, how did that all play out?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely, um, created a lot of anxiety and stress and not all of which I could, um, fully vent, like fully, um, express, maybe even articulate. Um, cause it's just like, you're in this, you're in the hole and, and, um, there's not a lot of daylight and you know, it's your fault. Um, I think there's a Radiohead lyric, you do it to yourself. That's what really hurts. Uh, That's kind of how I felt about it. Um, Self-inflicted and um, that like shame spirals and, you know, that kind of stuff. And that um, it's kind of like, you know, I haven't experienced like really deep grief, but the, the waves of it were, you know, as follow that wave kind of like pattern where it'd be like, all right, I got it. I, we can do this. And then you wake up in the middle of the night and you have that kind of like, Oh my God, what the hell? Um, and then it would kind of go, but like, why
0: the, am I doing this to myself? Yeah.
1: And then typically it was that waking up in the morning where you kind of like go through the layers of waking up, like through the layers of sleep, uh, that realization that this is, it wasn't a bad dream. You're actually in the middle of this thing and you got to figure it out. Um, mm. That was a daily experience for months. Um, but, you know, I had a, I, I don't know, like 12, 13 years ago, I got into a fitness regime that I just kind of became part of my identity. And, and just, I, there's just something I do in the morning is work out. And, um, and I, and if I don't do it, I, I feel, I feel it. And, I, um, so it's, it's habitual, it's become habitual. Um, and that was a massive, um, part of how I got through it. It's just like feeling physically fit and, um, and not like drinking too much or like kind of drowning my sorrows in other ways. I didn't, I didn't ever do anything like that. Um, sure. There were probably nights where I'd probably one more drink than I would normally have, but it it didn't, it wasn't to the point where I was like, using substances Mm -hmm. or other things to kind of get through it, which is another, I think, thing that I'm grateful for is that I didn't, you know, it's not something I chose. Some people don't have that choice. Some people it's part of their, you know, it's not something you can necessarily choose or not choose, but it just wasn't something I, Mm. how it's not not how I reacted to it. And then having the fitness piece of it and kind of leaning into that, actually, and just allowing myself to go on very long walks. was massive. Like, I think there's a tendency to kind of grip the grip, the wheel even tighter in a emergency like this. Mm -hmm. And, um, for whatever reason I took the opposite approach It's like, I kind of let go and I kind of allowed myself to be like, to relax and to take long walks or go on a long bike ride or get on the exercise bike and, and really try to hit it and sweat a little bit. And, um, I just can't say enough about that in terms of like getting me through that part, like massive, just the physical health piece of it. I think had I not had that, I think I, you know, could have all come, it could have ended a lot worse, I should say.
0: Yeah, there is a, a big misunderstanding around entrepreneurs or high performers that they put themselves at the bottom of their priority list when actually if you put yourself at the top of your priority list and you're selfish with your mental health, your physical health and the way you eat, then you are a better version of yourself you can cope with trauma better if you are healthy and fit and mentally okay. Uh, if you continually put yourself at the bottom, then everything just piles on top of you and you can't get out from under it. So I'm amazed and really happy to hear that fitness was number one. So as we close out, um, I think the question that I kind of leave most of my guests with is, what is the thing that you've learned through this near-death experience that you're gonna take it with you everywhere going forward?
1: Um, a few things, not to get so deep, hmm. deeply leveraged on an idea that hasn't been totally proven. Um, and even when the t- idea is totally proven not to get leveraged, um, so that I can, you know, so that other, so that I can continue to dictate my circumstances, um, to have to, la- to lose control was kind of like the antithesis of what I wanted as an entrepreneur. Like, I think entrepreneurs like having control. And I think if you. If you take on too much debt or maybe too many investors at the wrong time you lose that control you lose that autonomy so that's one thing just to maintain autonomy um another is just to be like super super resourceful and um to run lean until you um can't run lean like until you've like the business is strong enough there's enough money coming in and you've got too much to do where you actually have to hire people instead of doing that um doing that in anticipation of growth. Um, you you know, um, and part part and parcel of that is getting paid first. Like getting paid, be- the idea would be to get paid before the product's even launched because the idea is so good that people want it. Um, but this, the you know, failing that is to build a company based purely on revenue. Um, so that's another thing. Um, and I think also it's like, it's never as good as it seems or as bad as it seems. I think it's, it's even the worst moments. Um, In retrospect, you're like, I could see where I felt that that was like the end of the world, but you know, I got through it. And even like at the high points, you're like, you know, all right, that was a nice peak in the, in the, in the graph, but looking backwards, it, you know, doesn't feel that different than, so I think there's something to that as well. It's like, don't get too excited when, when, you're, um, when you're doing well and don't get too discouraged when you feel like you're up against it. It's like you're probably learning things in the process. And I think there's a level of grit and resilience to it that um, I have now too. I'm not, like, I'm not easily um, put off
0: these days. It's a cliche that I have uh, confidently tat- tattooed to my arm, that this too shall pass. Because whether you're happy or sad, this too shall pass. So in closing, Andrew, all I want to ask is for you to tell the listeners and viewers where they can find you, uh, where they can contact you if they want to, um, and anything else you feel like you need them to know to get in touch with you.
1: Yeah. So, um, uh, the company I run, one of the companies I run is ground source and you can email me at Andrew at ground Um, I'd love to hear from you. Um, uh, I'm also, Southwest Voices is the news site for Minneapolis I, I co-founded, and you can find that at southwestvoices.news, um, and then uh, building a new company, that'll be um, kind of the combination of GroundSource and some other things, and we're going to be calling that Relatable, and that's to be, um, to be not to be announced, but we're going to be working on, revealing that over the next several months.
0: Awesome. Andrew, thank you for your time, and I'm really excited to say that for GroundSource, source it's not over.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Nick. This has been great.